Hey, y'all, it's Rima. So this week, we're doing something a little different. We're sharing an episode from another podcast called Terrible Thanks for Asking. It is a podcast that deals with topics that change us forever, like death or trauma, which I know sounds really heavy, but it's thoughtful and sweet. And the host, Nora McInerney, is pretty funny. I heard this episode a while back and loved it so much that I wanted to share it with y'all. It's about a young woman's experience with family and money and how she suddenly shoulders all these new financial responsibilities after a big tragedy. We'll be back with a This Is Uncomfortable episode next week. But in the meantime, I hope y'all enjoy this. All right, here's the episode. I'm Nora McNerney, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. Quick question, if I, by the way, I always say quick question, even when it's not even close to being quick. This one, I don't know how quick will be for you, so it's just a question. If I were to give you $100, not doll hairs, dollars, right now, what would that mean to you? Just an extra $100, extra 100 bucks, smackers, no strings attached. You can do whatever you want with it. How much would that $100 change your life or not? How much would it change your mood? How much would it change your future? Now, I'm not actually offering you $100. I'm I'm not. It's just a thought exercise, but I'm guessing that when you thought about it, about having $100 extra dollars, you thought about a lot of stuff, like how much money you have in your wallet. That's $0 for me. How much money you have in the bank? how much money you have in upcoming bills, I'm guessing maybe you had some feelings about all that stuff. I'm further guessing that those feelings were different from what they might have been a couple years ago, or maybe even a couple days ago. Because money isn't just worth something. It makes us feel like we are worth something. And what we're worth can change depending on what's going on in our lives. In 2002, Courtney was an absolutely adorable little nine-year-old. I've seen pictures. It is just a fact. Courtney lived in Wisconsin with her mom and her dad in the house that her dad had grown up in. They lived on five acres of land just up the road from her grandma. Courtney was an only child. Her dad worked as a mechanic. Her mom worked in a warehouse. Their marriage wasn't perfect. No marriages, except obviously mine, But Courtney felt safe and comfy in their cozy home. Her days had a predictable rhythm. Go to daycare while her parents work, come home after mom got back from work, and sit and listen to music while mom cooked and cleaned up. I would sit and wait for my dad to get home. And I could always hear him, like, coming. And he'd get home, he would come in and, like, his coveralls and, like, the very stereotypical, like, bend down and scoop me up and give me a hug. And, like, even, like, to this day, like, I can still remember what he smelled like, like, when he walked through the door. What did he smell like? He smelled like, he smelled like the inside of a garage. That, like, kind of, I feel like the smell is oil. And oil and hard work. It's, like, this smell that, like, is only with people that, like, work with engines and, like, work with their hands. It's like the smell of the inside of a garage, but then like on a person. 
At home, Dad took care of the money and bills. Mom took care of the cleaning, the cooking. Courtney took care of being cute. And I always felt, like, very, like, loved. It was a good system. It worked for them. We were always, like, comfortable. Like, we always had food and, like, the house was always comfortable and I got things like for my birthday and for Christmas and we went out and, you know, did things. I think I knew that like some of my parents' friends had more money than they did just because they had lifestyles that were different than ours. We would go camping with my dad's best friend and I remember they had a full like permanent campsite which was like, you know, I could tell that they had like more money but it wasn't ever like We had a lack of money. It just didn't really get talked about. At 10, when you're financially secure, or at least feel that way, when you don't have money troubles keeping your parents up at night, or you're not aware of them at least, $100 seems like a silly amount of money. You could buy like a million Polly Pockets, a bajillion lip smackers. Those are examples of what I was into at age 10 in the 90s. If they don't resonate with you, I'm sorry for the decade you were born in or how you were raised. $100 to a 10-year-old seems like it could be a million dollars or it could be just a piece of paper with a weird picture of an old white guy on it. So let's say we give your family $100. What would that have meant to your family, do you think? Not a lot. Like, it would have been like an excuse to go do something, but it wouldn't have been... I don't think it would have been notable, I guess. The only time that, like, I was talked to about money when I was that young was my dad's mom would give me bonds for my birthdays. And so that's, like, really the only context that anybody ever truly was talking to me about money. Bonds are a wonderful grandma gift. I never received one myself. I remember my cousins getting them from their grandma and being weirdly jealous Kind of a serious kid, I guess. Really was worried about my future. Most of life is remarkably unremarkable. Days just sort of blend together. It's the interruptions to these routines, planned and unplanned interruptions, that become a way that families mark time. Oh, yeah, that was the year your grandpa got in a fight with your uncle, At Thanksgiving, yes, it was physical. Or that was the year we went to Disney World, something that I can't say because our parents never took us there. Point being, I love how a family comes to mark time by the ways they spend time. And Courtney's family loved to spend time camping. Like, you know, we would probably go camping three or four times in a summer, but like Fourth of July was kind of the big one. You know, like we would get like Fourth of July themed glasses and necklaces and flags and just the dumb patriotic stuff that everybody in America seems to love and you know like pack up the camper and it was just a big weekend you know it's just like this weekend where the entire family looked forward to it that was true every year and it was true in 2002 when Courtney was nine the countdown to this fourth of July trip had started months in advance The family had just remodeled the kitchen, and one of mom's requests was a chalkboard. My mom would sometimes write, like, love you, you know, cute things like that. And 
Before we were gonna go camping for this 4th of July, my dad was really stressed with work and he was like really ready to go camping. So at the top of the chalkboard, he had a little countdown and there was a little blank and it said, blank nights until nothing to do. Imagine each morning, Courtney's dad in his coveralls, about to leave for work, wiping the chalkboard to reflect how much closer they were to a full week of nothing to do. Now, imagine the date sticking there, at however many nights left, because that countdown was interrupted. So he started having symptoms over Memorial Day weekend. He had really bad stomach pain, and he went to the doctor, and the doctor was like, well, you have ulcers. You've had ulcers before. You just have an ulcer. My dad was like, I don't think so. And he's like, no, it's an ulcer. It was like, you know, we'll treat your ulcers, and you're going to be fine. And then he didn't get better. And then they started going to more doctors and more doctors. And two, like, four weeks after his first symptom, they diagnosed him with stage four pancreatic cancer. Stage four pancreatic cancer has a five-year survival rate of 3%. That's according to the American Cancer Society. I feel like they'd know. That's not a lot of percents. So just a few weeks later, right before July 4th, it became clear that Courtney's dad was not going to be in that 3%. It was like right around his birthday. He found out he was terminal, like, you know, and there was nothing else they could do. And they were just going to hospice and that's it. And um, I remember that weekend, like, my dad had built this clothing line for my mom and It was, like, on casters, so, like, you could roll it through the lawn. And I remember it wasn't quite finished, and my dad's best friend came over and, like, helped finish it. And I remember them, like, sailing it past my dad's window, like, past his hospital bed. And I remember my dad laughing. And my dad did this thing where he, like, had everybody come in, and he had, like, a last conversation with everybody. And it was, like, pretty clear that's what it was, but it... It, w- it wasn't acknowledged, like, going into it. It was just like, you know, Dad's just going to talk to everybody. And um, I remember sitting there, like, with his arm around me, and he was, like, talking to me. And he's like, I love you, and I'm so proud of you. <laughs> like, it was just such a nice conversation. And he's, like, telling me, you know, it's going to be okay, and everything's going to be fine. And, you know, I love you so much. And I remember feeling, like, so loved. And it was, like, just this perfect, nice conversation. I can remember everything so clearly. Like, I remember the night he died. I was still awake. I was in my room. And I was literally sitting at my window praying that God would make my dad better. And my mom yelled up the stairs, and all she said was Courtney. And I could tell in the way that her voice broke that he had died. And I yelled, and I was like, he's gone, isn't he? And she was like, yeah. And I went downstairs, and... They called to have a nurse come over and, like, pronounce the time of death. And that was it. That's it. Dad never got to take that camping trip. The countdown on the chalkboard never moved any closer. He died on July 5th at 11.59 p.m. The death of a person isn't just the death of a person, it's the loss of who they were in your world. Courtney has lost the smell of oil and hard work. 
that comforting presence who scooped her up every night in his arms. The man who counted down to a vacation with his family. And Courtney's mom has lost her partner. The guy who fixed things and took care of things, who paid bills and balanced the checkbook. Sometimes you don't even notice the structure of your world until it crumbles. The same way you don't think about the stability of the ground beneath your feet until it wavers. The same way you don't think about the structure of your house until there's a crack in the foundation and all your furniture starts to just lean precariously to the south. There's nothing that shows you the fragility of the world you live in like having a pillar of that world knocked out. And Courtney's dad was that pillar. knew people liked my dad and my dad had a lot of friends and like anywhere we went people would like talk to my dad and but I didn't realize it until like his funeral and we had it at a local funeral home and it was packed it was just like there was people outside sitting like listening to it like on speakers because it wasn't big enough for everybody to like be inside for the service That night, Courtney's house was the site of a huge party. Her mom and dad's friends filled that farmhouse, spilled out onto the lawn. There was drinking, there was laughter, there was music and joy to alleviate that deep, deep sadness that gets stuck in your throat and your chest. Everybody got very drunk, and it was actually, like, a really good night. Even, like, obviously, I was just out there, like, watching these adults hang out. I remember there was like, it was crazy. It was like somebody had set up a kiddie pool at one point because it's like the middle of the summer. And I remember my mom's best friend diving into it. And I remember waking up the next morning and looking out my window of my room and seeing like my dad's like cousins And my mom's friends, literally, like, people sleeping, like, in our lawn. Like, we had a pop-up camper. People were sleeping in that. There was, like, people everywhere. I, like, went downstairs. There was people everywhere. Everybody was still sleeping. And I just remember walking around, and I remember that being, like, a moment where I was, like, this is a good moment that I need to, like, remember because everybody was so happy and everybody was talking about my dad. The death of a parent is a really easy change to recognize when it happens, but that's not where things stop changing. Eventually, nearly everything about Courtney's life would be different. And we'll get into that after this break. We're back. Courtney is 10 years old. Her dad has died. Her mom has quit her job. Her life is just different. One night, Courtney's mom had gone out for the evening with some friends, and Courtney was with a babysitter. And it was 2.30, and my mom hadn't come home. And she wasn't answering calls. She wasn't answering anything. And I was, like... I mean, looking back, I was probably having a panic attack at the time. 
but I was panicking and it was 2.30 in the morning and I was like, I need to know where my mom is. And we drove to my friend's mom's house and they were there. And I remember my mom just laughing and brushing it off and being like, whatever, like, we're fine. And she just stayed out. And I, that was like the night where I was like, this is, this is different. This is so different because she went from being my mom who was there for me all the time and like on it for the bake sale to staying out until 2.30 in the morning, not answering phone calls, coming home and throwing up at two in the afternoon. It's not like this was happening every night, but it happened enough. And on the outside, Courtney's mother was still the joyful, beautiful woman everyone knew her to be. She looked like she was doing just fine, aside from the fact that her husband had just died really quickly from pancreatic cancer. And it's easy to look okay to people you pass in the grocery store or people you see at parent-teacher night at school. It's easy to fool your friends. It's much, much harder to fool your kid. Courtney knows that her mom is different now, that their life is different now. It's not that warm, joyful house anymore. It's lonely. I mean, I would get home... And I'd probably, like, read a book or get on the computer and play Sims. And we would just kind of, like, exist in the house together, but it's not like we, like, interacted. And then she'd be like, you want to go get food? And I'd be like, yeah. And we'd go get food. And then we'd come home, and we'd go sit in separate places in the house and eat. And then I'd go to bed, and I'd wake up the next morning, and I would go to school, and we'd do it all over again. And then there's money. Courtney's mom was not working anymore, but she had gotten an undisclosed sum of money from her husband's life insurance policy. And she did what I know anecdotally a lot of people do in moments of deep, deep grief. She spent it. She finished the kitchen remodel. She remodeled our bathroom. She got a new truck. We ate out all the time all the time. She got really into those designer jeans with like the rhinestones on the butt. That was a big thing. She bought a lot of new clothes. She's going out a lot. She bought a permanent campsite like with a permanent trailer at a local campground. What your what your friends had. Yes, what they had. Yeah, because she's always trying to catch up. You know, we would go on like small vacations. Like, you know, we'd like go to the Dells or, you know, anything like that. Um, she would, like, pay for my friends to do things with us. And the clothes, that's honestly, like, a really big one for me because I just remember, like, she always had new clothes, like, always. And people would make comments about the fact that, like, that was pretty expensive for the kind of, like, class we were in. And so I kind of, like, I knew that that was kind of, like, off. But also, like, again, bills were being paid. So I was like, yeah, whatever. Did you ever talk about money with your mom? No. My mom would not talk about it. She wouldn't talk about it at all. Why would her mom be spending money if she didn't have it? Money, Courtney understands, it's just not important to her mother. 
It doesn't mean anything. Tell me, uh, what was your first job? Uh, So it's actually a job that I still have and work on the weekends. I worked at the world's largest Culver's. (gasps) So, yeah, pretty cool. Pretty, pretty cool. I've been there. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My goodness. started when I was 14. Four hour uh, ignorant listeners who don't know the glory of a Culver's. Yeah, they're great. I mean, they're great. It's a great company to work for. It's great food. Everything about it's great. Um, Culver's is a Midwestern fast casual chain serving butter burgers. Oof. And it's called a butter burger because we butter and toast the bun. And it's always made with fresh beef pressed when you order it. Cheese curds are a very big thing, and for people that might not know what those are, and I feel deep, deep, deep sympathy for you, they're little pieces of cheese that are breaded and deep fried, and then they have custard. And custard is like ice cream, but ice cream with everything that makes ice cream good and then tripled. So it's like extra fat and extra butter and extra creamy, and it's wonderful. The one money rule that Courtney did understand at that age is that she had to put half of her paycheck into a savings account. And the other half, she could spend however she wanted. That's a pretty good deal. Courtney would work a few four-hour shifts a week, scooping custard, running food to the dining room. And when the paychecks came, she could enjoy the freedom of having her own money. For some people, making their own money changes entirely how they feel about money. Like, I didn't care because, like, I was 14. Like, I didn't really even have a concept of, like, really, like, what saving meant or, like, how you did it. I was like, I make money every couple weeks, and if I run out of money, I make more two weeks later. So I didn't have any concept of that at that time, like none, because, you know, that was the way my mom did it. And I was like, this seems fine. So if we gave you $100, what would it have meant to you? Uh, If you had given me $100, it would have gone into my savings. I mean, that would have been a significant amount of money to me. That would have meant something to me at that point in time. And I would know that I had this little windfall and that windfall should go into savings. So tell me about the first time that your mom asked you for money. How old were you? Where were you? How did she ask? How did that feel? Um, okay, so I was probably like 15. And it started with things like she didn't have a bank account because she wasn't allowed to have one. She had like overdrafted so severely that they just closed her account. And... So she didn't have a bank account at the time, but I didn't, you know, I didn't question it a ton. Like, at this point, I knew that there was, like, some financial trouble because she was, like, a little stressed about it. It started with things where she would be like, can I deposit this money into your account and have you write a check for something? And then it was like, oh, you want to have your cell phone? Like, you need to pay the bill this month. I don't have the money for it. The first time that it ever, like, really, like— impacted me, though, was I had a savings account, and my mom had a car loan through the same place I had my savings account at. And I didn't know that at the time. But I went to get money out to get gas. I wanted to take out, like, 50 bucks or something, and I should have had, like, a couple grand. And they were like, you have $5 in your account. And I'm like, I don't understand how that's possible. Like, I just had, like, 
two grand in there. And they were like, well, we can get, like, transactions. And they had been transferring money out of my savings account because it had my mom's name on it to pay for her car loan because she wasn't paying it. And since that account had her name on it, they just drained my account. Yeah. So that was the first time that it, like, really sunk in for me. That savings account was the one where Courtney put half of every paycheck. Courtney leaves the bank empty-handed. She does not stop for the gas she cannot afford. She drives home to her mom, hoping for some kind of explanation, at least an apology. And she was mad at them because all of her money problems were, like, the fault of other people. That was a big thing about money with my mom is they closed my bank account. They did this to you. Courtney never got that money back. She never got an explanation. She was 16 years old, and her years of savings from slang and burgers and custard were gone. Like a plate of fresh cheese curds. And this feels bad. It feels really bad and kind of scary. Also, I was like, you're an adult. Like, you should be doing better than this. And it's, like, really frustrating for me that you are acting like this. It's frustrating, but Courtney is not going to be in this town forever or in this situation forever. She's got her sights set on college. Courtney signs herself up for the ACT. She pays her own registration fee. She applies to college and pays her own application fees. And when it's time to pay the tuition, it's Courtney who signs the student loan documents. At that point, I was, like, pretty much ready to, like, cut everything off with my mom. Still talk to her and stuff, but, like, I was like, this is my chance to, like, be free of my mom. It's way easier to say, no, you can't borrow money when you don't live there. So I was really, really thinking, like, this is my way out. Like, I can go to college, I can get a degree, I can get a good job, and then I don't have to ever live like my mom. College was not a fresh start. Not the way Courtney had imagined it. She ended up living in her mother's house for most of college, working and going to school. Courtney's mom still won't talk to her specifically about money, but Courtney figures that the life insurance money must be long gone. Because her mom isn't just asking Courtney to cash some checks and cover some bills. She's asking Courtney to cover the mortgage payment. And so, like, by the time I graduated my last year of college, I was working, like, 50 hours a week and taking 19 credits, I was like, if I just work really, really hard, like, I can break the cycle. I can get—I can not live like my mom if I just work really hard. That's what it is. I just—I just really need to work super hard, and I can do this. And, like, were other people aware of this situation? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I wasn't talking about it. It was shameful. I was ashamed. I was ashamed of the fact that, like— My mom lived like this, and, you know, this was, like, the person that she was and that this was, like, the situation. And I didn't know anybody else like that, you know? All of my friends, their parents were, like, paying for college and buying them stuff for college and, you know, doing that kind of stuff. I was the only person I knew that was, you know, in any way financially responsible for a parent. And so I wasn't talking about it. I wasn't asking. I wasn't telling anybody that this is, like, how it was going down. And I can guarantee my mom wasn't telling anybody.
money means a lot of things. And it means something different when you don't have it than when you do. When you need to take it from someone else than when you have it to give. I don't pretend to be able to speak to what money means across every single culture and economic stratosphere, but in America, money is generally meant to flow from the parents to the children. We aim to provide for our kids, at least while they're under our roofs. And the reversal of that stream, however strong the familial bonds, can feel wrong for both parties. And it does for Courtney and her mom. Her mom's not proud of this situation. She didn't tell any of her friends the truth about her finances. And Courtney was also ashamed to be taking care of the woman who used to take care of her. And Courtney also resented this. So what's the significance of her borrowing the money? Just that she was irresponsible. Like, I just, I saw it as, like, a huge sign of, like, irresponsibility. And I felt so guilty. I could never say no to her. But it's because I felt guilty, and she would make me feel bad about it. Even when I was, like, really young, she'd be like, you're so selfish, and you don't care about anybody besides yourself, and why are you such a bitch, and why are you like this? And so, like, that was in my head, you know, like, that I was this selfish, awful person. And so when she asked me for money, I was like, well, there's no way I can say no if I have it. And, like, I knew kind of in the abstract that, like, I needed that money because, like, when I graduated, like, I was going to need to pay for things and I was going to need to pay down my student loans. I needed to get a car while I was in college. You know, like, I I knew that money meant that was my path to getting the things that I wanted to get. But, like, I didn't have kind of, like, a sense of, like, financial, like, responsibility or what, like, those sums of money meant in that way. Courtney's mom had declared Chapter 13 bankruptcy a few years prior, which includes a debt repayment plan. But you can't repay debt if you're not working, which she wasn't because she had a lot of health issues. In 2015, when Courtney is graduating from college, her family's planning a little get-together to celebrate Courtney. And we were supposed to have this, like, small little get-together the next day, you know, to celebrate my graduation. And then she showed up, and she told me that she had stage 4 cancer. She had uh, non-small cell lung cancer. And I panicked. And, you know, we talked, and I just remember telling her, like, fuck you, you can't do this to me. Like, you can't die. You can't fucking do this to me. And... It was, like, just this horrible, like, awful feeling. Like, it didn't even feel real when she, like, told me. And they left. And I was talking to my boyfriend, and I said, I need to go to work right now. She meant that literally. She went to Culver's. And she meant it figuratively. Courtney had to figure out how to fully support herself and her mother through this sickness. Courtney is getting to work. She's now working 60 hours a week. Stage four cancer means hoping for the best and preparing for the worst. Courtney has done this before. But when she was a kid, it was her mom taking care of her dad, and now it's Courtney 
an only child, who's responsible for her mother's well-being, for literally keeping the lights on for her. Eventually, that is the natural order of things. The people who raise us and take care of us end up relying on us. It's the circle of life, and it sucks. Courtney's mother underwent radiation as part of her cancer treatment, and the side effects were really intense. She developed what we later found out was radiation-related dementia. And she went downhill really fast and, like, lost a lot of, like, her cognitive function. And luckily, she had long-term care insurance, but somebody needed to figure out, like, how to get that, you know, like, how you get that money, how you submit a claim, how you do all of that stuff. That somebody, as her mother's only child, was Courtney. It was Courtney who made sure the bills were paid and that her mother had people to help care for her. Courtney, who found herself at the intersection of the American financial and healthcare systems before she was old enough to rent a car. Courtney, who ended up as her mother's power of attorney, which meant she was now very formally in charge of her mother's finances, in charge of her life. It's so bad. It's so bad. So I get I get in charge of her finances, right? Like I, you know, I get access to stuff and I'm like, okay. Where we're here, we're doing this, and her bank account's got, like, 60 bucks in it. Doesn't have a savings. Um, bankruptcy payments need to be made. And I'm like, okay, we better figure something out. And so I start by, like, getting her long-term care insurance set up, and that's a pain to file. And I'm like, okay, like, we can, we can get this. But money starts, you know, we make it. We make it. Like, we just, we squeak by. I'm strategically figuring out, like, which bills we can pay until some, like, cash gets in. When cash comes in, it's already claimed. It's already out the door by the time it arrives in the account. Someone somewhere is always waiting to be paid. The cash comes in little bits, a GoFundMe or a cancer coalition that provides financial support. And then, boom, it's already gone. You know, like, keep people off her backs and, like, get her bankruptcy, you know, back on track and all this stuff. And it's not a lot. It's not a lot of money at all. And, like, cancer is expensive. And... But it's like, you know, we can squeak by. Like, we're not paying medical bills, but, like, we're paying for prescriptions and we're paying co-pays. And we might be waiting a little bit to pay the electric bill, but, like, we are paying, you know, her bankruptcy payments. You know, the stuff that, like, there was, like, figuring out and, like, prioritizing, like, how can we really make this work? So at this point, if I would have given you $100, what would that have meant to you? If you had given me $100, I would have figured out what bill needs to be paid. I would have been like, okay, that hundred bucks, like, that's the electric bill this month. Like, that, it would have meant a lot. And it's hard because it's like, my mom's also dying. And so I'm trying to balance, like, this very specific, these are the needs. Like, you know, these things need to be taken care of. But also, like, trying to do things to, like, make her happy and make her comfortable. You know, making sure she had comfy clothes. And, like, she was on steroids and it makes you all bloated. And, like, trying to make sure, you know that she had things that fit her or, like, had soft blankets or, you know, like, all of those, like, small comforts that you don't really think about, but, like, trying to find that balance of, like, how much do you put towards making a dying person comfortable when you don't have the money to barely pay the bills? 
but I was trying really hard to keep my finances separate from hers because I was like, the second that I open that gate where I start contributing to this, it's done. She's going to take me down with her. When she dies, that's it, and I still have to pay my bills. And so if I let myself go into ruin in these two years, what am I going to do? This financial shell game, it consumes Courtney. For two years, she's keeping her mother afloat while also trying to keep herself from drowning. If she wasn't out making money, she was trying to figure out how to make money last. All day, every day, Courtney was thinking about money. That was really stressful and really hard, and I didn't have time to, like, think about really anything else outside of, like, the money aspect of it. And it sucked because I was like, I'm the only person that can be responsible, and I'm also the only person that, like, I trust to be responsible for my mom's money. And there were people around my mom who would make comments to me, like, you know, money isn't everything. And I was like, get fucked. Like, you don't really realize that that's not a choice for me. Like, I have to be there to take care of my mom's money because no one else is, and nobody's just going to sweep in and take care of it. Because if I stop paying for stuff, then what? They stop her treatment? Like, what happens? Money isn't everything when you have money. When you don't, when you're living on that edge of survival... Money means a whole hell of a lot more. There are actually several studies about this that always seem to be making the rounds on the internet, and the number varies from 60,000 to 95,000 US dollars per year. But researchers have basically found that, yeah, money does buy happiness. Not in the way that you might be thinking, but just making enough money not only to cover your own expenses, but also to plan for the future, it does make weathering the storms of life much easier. So think about that. If $60,000 a year buys happiness, it's also important to know that the median salary in the U.S. is around $56,000 a year. We do have a government program called Medicaid that provides health coverage to millions of Americans, including eligible low-income adults, children, pregnant women, elderly adults, people with disabilities. But to qualify for Medicaid... There's a cap on the amount of money that you can make. And for an individual, that cap is $17,236, which is not a lot of money. There's also research showing that many Americans don't have $400 to cover an unexpected emergency, which is kind of a dumb sentence because emergencies are always unexpected. The point is that the struggle of Courtney's is actually very, very common. This is a reality for a lot of people, including a lot of people listening to this show. Most of us are actually much closer to the edge than we would care to admit. So Courtney's mom was on Medicare, which is similar to Medicaid. And also to qualify for Medicare, there's a limit on personal assets. If your bank account exceeds that amount, if you appear to make more than that limit, your benefits stop. Medicare is what made it possible for Courtney's mom to be in that nursing home. So when Courtney would get any cash injection, a small GoFundMe set up by friends, or that little check from her mother's long-term care insurance, she had to figure out how to use it without jeopardizing her mom's care. Courtney, 
So we got lucky. Her Chapter 13 bankruptcy, you make payments, and she had made the last payment before we sold the house, and that was strategic on my part. So we get a check, but I can't put it in her bank account because if she has money, her Medicare stops. And April 26th, they call me, and they're like, your mom is actively dying, and I'm like, okay. And my first reaction is not to go to my mom. My first reaction is to figure out how I'm going to pay for stuff. I've said before that it's a privilege to be allowed to grieve, a privilege to have the time and the space and the resources to sit in your pain, to sit with a loved one while they exit this world. But Courtney didn't have that privilege. And so I get that check, get a couple other checks that had been just like hanging out. I go put it in her bank account and I call a funeral home. And I said, I need to come in to plan a funeral now like right now. And they were like, okay, when can you come in? And I was like, literally whenever. And they were like, okay, tomorrow morning you have an appointment. And so then I went and saw my mom and, you know, she had started like the active dying process. And um, I was there, I stayed, you know, and I went home and woke up the next morning and I went and I prepaid for a funeral. And I spent every dollar she had until she had $3.64 in her bank account. And then I went and sat with my mom while she died. And... I had a conversation with her. I held her hand and I said, you know, I'm going to be okay because if you taught me literally anything, it's how to be okay. But, you know, even like that, like that moment, that time that I should have just been like sitting with my mom, I was sitting there trying to figure out like, how do I pay for this stuff? Courtney's mom died. And in the end, all that was left was $3.64. But her mother's death wasn't the end of Courtney's responsibilities. Her mother's funeral wasn't even the end. Because having power of attorney means that you are responsible for settling the decedent's estate. Don't love the word decedent. There are states with filial laws where children are responsible for their dead parents' debt, but Wisconsin is not one of those states. But still, there's a whole part of dying that involves other people proving that you're dead improving what assets you had or did not have when you died. So that's what Courtney had to do after that prepaid funeral was over. And it just kept going because she's on Medicare and she had to like prove all her assets and then any money that she did get or any checks that came in after she died, all that needed to be paid back to the state. But it just dragged on for months and months and months and it finally gets settled and, you know, everything's paid back and they send me this letter and I still have that letter And I'm keeping it because I intend to frame it someday and put it on the wall because that's probably the most relief I've ever felt in my life was to get this letter that said, like, you don't have to deal with this anymore. You don't have to be responsible for your mom and for her money and for everything else. And, like, that was when I finally got to move on was not when she died, but when her estate was settled. You know, that was when that was when I got to move on. I want to plan more. I want to think more in the long term because my mom was pretty good about like, how can we make it day to day? And I want to be thinking about like what my life looks like in 10, 15, 20 years. You know, like I want to be working on that stuff. I want to make sure that there are plans and that I have money to fall back on and not just like spending money. I want to invest in things. 
I just want to think about it a much larger picture than the way she did because I think she was so narrowly focused because she never really had a lot of money so everything was you know day to day but she didn't have like the ability to think outside of that to really you know figure out a way out of it I want to have a plan and I want to work towards goals and not away from consequences If we gave you $100 today, what would that mean to you? If you gave me $100 today, I would put it into savings. Um, Because like $100 to me at this point in my life is a, it's like a comfort thing. That's just like a little extra, you know, money. But it's like, it's not like I would need it. But it would be like, it's nice to have that and tuck it away. That was Nora McInerney, host of Terrible Thanks for Asking. Credit for that episode goes to their team. Hans Buto, Marcel Malikibu, Megan Palmer, Jordan Turgeon, Hannah Meacock-Ross, and Joffrey Wilson. Their show is produced by American Public Media. All right. We, this is Uncomfortable, will be back next week. And we've got an episode about three high school friends and how the pandemic, how this moment in time is impacting the choices they're making. Maybe the smartest option would be to, like, go to community college. Like, if I'm going to have online classes, there's just so many options that sound safer and smarter due to the financial, like, circumstances of the moment. They've got a lot on their minds right now. Also, if you want even more This Is Uncomfortable in your life, you can sign up for our newsletter. It includes some behind-the-scene info, plus recommendations from the team to make your week a little better. It comes out every Friday, and you can subscribe at marketplace.org slash comfort. All right. I hope everyone is doing well and staying safe, and I'll catch y'all soon. (laughs) 